Sometimes, though, it seems that maybe a great idea comes through the competition that might actually be contrary to a brief that sometimes wins. I mean, that seems to be, from an outside perspective, that happens, right? Yeah, it does. And uh, let's talk about a brief, because that, perhaps that's the most important thing to the factor here. A brief, I, I don't see at a competition stage, uh, a brief shouldn't just be a schedule of accommodation. It is really a narrative about what the outcome is to be. And obviously it's important to give the architects something. They are designed with space, so some aspects about that. But it's not important to have a finely developed brief because I think that comes after a competition in association, the client and the architect working together. Today we have a one-hour special episode. Visiting from London is Malcolm Redding, the founder and chairman of Malcolm Redding Consultants. Here he talks to Steve Costa, managing director at Hassel, and Mark Lochnan, head of design at Hassel, about the procurement of architecture and the role of competitions internationally and, of course, locally. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralises your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Welcome, Malcolm, Steve and Mark. Malcolm Redding, I'm visiting from London. We run an architectural competitions consultancy and we're going to unearth the magic of competitions for you. I'm Steve Coster. I'm the Managing Director at Hassel. Very interested in the procurement of architecture and the role of competitions. My name is uh, yeah, Mark Lochnan. I'm a Head of Design at Hassel and looking forward to having a conversation about competitions internationally and, of course, locally. Malcolm. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to Australia. Thank you. Really interested to hear from you about your background and your organisation and what you do. Uh, full disclosure, I'm an architect, uh, but I also was a client. And uh, we basically take the pain and the uncertainty out of procurement for clients. So we run competitive processes, everything from uh, small cafes to parts of the city, and this is the I idea, really, is to engage with both the clients and the design industry to get exceptional projects. From your experience, it's really about the process that is the key to unlocking great design outcomes, the nature of the process? One of the things about competitions is they tend to get reported a lot and they in the spotlight, but they are a fraction of a fraction of procurement spend. It occurred to me when I was, uh, you know actually working as an architect and as a client, that many clients uh, come to construction as a one-off client, particularly in the fields of education, cultural buildings, uh, even many cities. One, a client may only do one or two projects in their life. And it's very difficult, therefore, to engage with the architectural and design community. And that was the the spark, really, that I began to think about how could one build bridges between these two parts of the uh, uh, construction industry. So that talks about the notion of maybe clients not necessarily knowing what to do or how to do it to produce a good outcome. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it exactly. Because if you look at the, the other side of the coin, which is commercial clients, they're usually set up both to understand exactly what they want as an outcome from a design team, and they often have staff who are ex-designers or project managers or architects indeed, and therefore it's a much easier relationship for them to develop. But if you've got a client who, uh, in many cases, you know, is embarking upon something where they're hoping for a complete change to an organisation or a change to the way the organisation works, and therefore they don't have access to the types of skills that they might need from the key team, the key team, which is the designers. So are there pre-existing criteria that make it a good situation for running a competition as opposed to some other mode of procurement? Do you look for a certain set of circumstances that you think, yes, this is perfect for a competition format? That's an excellent question. Yeah, I would say that 
probably the important aspect is a client who's looking for identity and innovation. That's where a competition can really shine because you are asking people to really look at something afresh and, the, and being in a competitive process with your peers, that's the way to, to gain the best quality and the best outcome for a client. So it, it isn't in every case a competition is not the right sort of thing to do and we do sometimes advise clients, look, this is not the right way to go. Uh, but for, for one-off projects where innovation and identity are really the core it's an excellent way. And, and what do you say to the client then about how to set that competition up to get that kind of great outcome? What do they need to do prior to the invitation out to the market? Well, the key is the brief because the brief will set a lot of the parameters of what the client is looking for and it also begins to give the beginnings of an insight into the types of architects that a client is seeking and so therefore we spend quite a lot of time helping clients to to write those briefs devise those briefs and in fact it's often as long as the competition itself is spent beforehand writing the brief so so the brief from your perspective can help determine perhaps the type of architect or designer for a project are you involved in that process yes we are and and i you know, perhaps the time now is to tell you exactly how we're structured as a company. So we have about 10 people and uh, two or three of us are architects. But the key to all of this is the writing of the brief because the creation of a narrative about a project and exciting the design industry and aiming it in the right direction is a very important part of what we do. So it's not just a technical aspect. It's not to say... Uh, you know, the sort of relevant experience might, one might need, but it's actually shaping a narrative that an, a, an architect can respond to. And that is usually the pointer, that's their bait, as it were, that gets the architects interested. And how, how do you determine, you know, because often the outcome or the winning design changes as things evolve, how, how do you determine or decide an ideas competition where, you know, the deliveries and the, it's really about an idea versus a more considered and resolved proposition well that's probably a good point just to clarify what we might be talking about because in my world there are three types of competitions the first type is the traditional blind design contest which was which is a great favorite particularly in europe and the states where you set a brief you issue it to the world of architecture and you get anonymous submissions back and you judge those submissions entirely based upon design what's in front of you uh, and uh, it's bizarrely highly popular with the architectural industry, but it's a track record of buildings which come out of it is extremely poor. We did some research uh, along with the project we did for the Guggenheim in, in uh, Helsinki, and uh, the statistics are very poor of, of, of final projects which come out of this form of um, competition. So the second uh, typology in a competition is a design competition itself where you write a brief you invite the world of architects to uh, express interest you select a shortlist and the shortlist then gets a lot more engagement with the client a proper design brief a site visits and some form of engagement and from that comes design concepts but more importantly the way that these are assessed is on the basis of design capability, design culture, the team, the fit. So it's sort of more of a balanced uh, approach. And that is a very popular way, I think, of getting the right teams. And we have a good level of success in doing that. So it's really a hybrid between a, a, sh a closed shortlist process where the client goes straight to appointment from an interview and the other end extreme, which is that kind of romantic notion of the anyone in the world could win this yeah. open anonymous competition and trying to find the best of both worlds through that kind of exactly. hybrid approach. Exactly. And, and that, through the hybrid approach, you can tune the approach to get exactly the outcome that you want. Uh, and it's this level of engagement that I think is the critical thing between the competitors and the client during the design competition process. Why do you think it is that the architectural profession is so fascinated and intrigued and can't help themselves but chase the anonymous global open competition. Yeah. 
I think it's because it's the dream, isn't it? It is the dream to have your scheme unpacked and picked by an anonymous jury and all your peers and to win above your peers. But the risks are massive. We've, we've only ever run two, two competitions in that design open contest process because I do find it is a, it's a wasteful way. I don't mean it's wasteful for the industry because I think the corollary to this is that in terms of architectural dialogue, it's, it's a fascinating experience. We had 1,700 entries for the Guggenheim in Helsinki. That is a moment in architecture. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the people who entered actually did so because they wanted to be part of that experience. We had a number of people who wrote to us in that way. But I think in terms of commissioning good architecture that's meaningful and is lasting, then I think the competition process, the shortlisting process is much more effective. The anonymous competitions from a business perspective are, you know, you would say very risky because you might be one of a hundred or whatever. I guess from the architecture profession, that that competition is interesting from one hand because often an architect doesn't get an opportunity to work on lots of different typologies. And so there's that that issue of, you know, reverting to an architect who's built five or six or ten of a particular type of building versus someone who has a great idea, might have a great track record of delivering projects, but not necessarily that typology. So how do you deal with that sort of dilemma somehow? Well, I think there are t- two points wrapped up in your, in your question. The first is that what we do find... Um, in terms of design contests is that actually it is a great testing ground for young architects and you often find we certainly found in the Guggenheim that young associate architects would get together form a team from big star practice for instance uh, and for them it was part of what they wanted to do personally to to enter the competition but in terms of how really you ensure that you've got architects who are open in a, in a design competition process. We, we have a, a way of selecting architects that isn't, if I could put it around this way, is that you know sometimes you get a, an RFP or an EOI which says, we'd like to see, we're designing a library. We'd like to see the last five libraries you've designed. Well, clearly that's going to exclude a lot of people. And it also reveals... Um, mistruth i think that somehow a library is something which has which can only be designed by people who've designed libraries before and i think when you look at the real steps forward that we have in buildings it's because we introduce somebody from a completely different field a different architect who brings something fresh Uh, so we always have to try and guard against that that uh, the selection process doesn't lead to the all the usual suspects for instance but that's why your brief is so critical right because a successful outcome or a great outcome would bring together the freshness of creativity with real intimate knowledge of what makes a library work well as a library. And so if your brief is the part of the process that captures that understanding of the client's requirements and brief and aspirations for the best a library can be, then it does open the field for fresh creative perspectives on that from the designers so long as that knowledge is embedded in the brief. That's true. And I I hope that's what we do bring. That's the difference to somebody who's just organising a procurement process because we come from a design background and because we've delivered projects and I've been a client, we do understand that that's the key, that's the magic, is that brief at the outset. So when you're setting off on that process with a client, how do you go about determining all the different factors that need to be decided upon for a, for a competition. You know, you've got to set the criteria, you've got to determine a jury, you've got to define the extent of the deliverables and time frame and the fees for participating and who to invite as a shortlist. How, what's the process of working through determining all those variables yeah. in each situation? Because we've done about 120 of these now, it's a much easier process than it was right at the beginning. And I think the there's a natural way of progressing through this but the first thing is really to get from the client an understanding of what they're looking for and do they want something which is thinking outside the box or is a completely fresh approach because that's the starting point I think for a successful competitive process the second thing I think to find out from a client is whether is what type of architect they're looking for 
And what's common, I think, is that for many clients is that you know a number of architects, usually through the press or because friends have introduced them, but they don't know the new talent, for instance. And getting an understanding of that from a client, how much risk they want to introduce to the process or how, what they would like to see from the process uh, is an important point. The rest tends to follow. The, um, the process itself, the timetable, these sorts of things follow a normal conversation. But it's, the, it's, it's getting this brief right is the important start. So the brief becomes the criteria, really. Yeah. Sometimes, though, it seems that maybe a great idea comes through the competition that might actually be contrary to a brief that sometimes wins. I mean, that seems to be, from an outside perspective, that happens. Yeah, it does. And uh, let's talk about a brief, because that, perhaps that's the most important thing to the factor here. A brief, I, I don't see at a competition stage, uh, a brief shouldn't just be a schedule of accommodation. It is really a narrative about what the outcome is to be. And obviously, it's important to give the architects something they are designed with space, so some aspects about that. But it's not important to have a finely developed brief because I think that comes after a competition in association, the client and the architect working together. So it's more of a narrative and it's a, a list of, uh, sort of menu in a way of what a client is trying to achieve from a project. It's not necessarily just a schedule of accommodation. Through the process of a, a competition, is there... Um, often there's client interaction and sometimes there's not. Is there, you know, what do you see the pros and cons of that interaction through the design process of a competition? Well, one of the factors that all of us are constrained by often is procurement process. So when we have a two-stage design competition, generally they are run under some sort of public procurement framework. And that by its definition limits the relationship that a client can have with an individual team. Uh, and that's quite a challenge. We we try to invent ways to make that work, site visits, um, feedback sessions, mid-stage reviews and things, but it is, it is quite a challenge to make it work under public procurement. We have a, a separate process, which we often use for clients who don't have public procurement, which is more of an interview process, and it takes place in their offices. There may be charrettes. Uh, there may be separate visits, individual visits, and that is, uh, I feel that's a very successful way. And, and I would say almost half of our processes we now run are this sort of hybrid approach where it doesn't have to be run under public procurement rules. And that's certainly, the more dialogue you can have in a competitive process, the better the outcome. So the client in those instances are really getting to know the team yeah. as much as the idea. Yeah, and it is, I think, this cultural fit with a team, particularly now, you know, you've got a situation really where when we ran competitions 10, 12 years ago, it would be very much focused on an individual architect or an architect's practice. It's completely different nowadays. It's a team and it may be a team of uh, 10 or, you know, 8 to 10 designers who cover engineering, uh, urban design, landscape, sometimes art. And it's the collaborative team that uh, is now determining competition entries all of our competitions are really for teams that definitely seems to be a trend we're observing is this sort of tendency to team collaborative groups of firms together why do you think that is i think design has become much more complex and uh, i mean even the sort of technical aspects of design have become more complex sustainability engineering these aspects they are now fundamentally part of making buildings work and the old days of sort of an architect designed something, an engineer worked out how it was going to be built, have gone. And you guys must know that. You must work very closely with uh, many collaborators because of the cutting-edge stuff work that you do. But the other aspect it brings in is is also being able to engage younger members of the profession, either as individuals or as small firms. And we have a number of processes where the engagement of emerging architects or however you want to call them, sort of young practices as part of the competitive process. Clients really like that because it gives, a, it gives an edge 
to the design itself and it also keeps everybody on their toes in a way it's a it's a good way of uh, of getting a good outcome this is the young You're, emerging under 60s architects that we're yeah, talking yeah, about that's right, right. That's, up and comers yes yeah the young just starting off how many countries are you currently working across well i think we've done competitions in every continent including antarctica but we run i would say probably about 12 competitive processes a year and well certainly within i mean as a international practice it's well i see we see certainly within the australian context a lot more often interest or sometimes a requirement in competitions for so-called international yeah. architects do you see that sort of in other places that you're working? I, I would say that most of our clients are interested in a, a kind of international approach. Otherwise, they wouldn't engage us. But I also see that architecture is an international practice now. And it's not, you know, the, not only technology, but travel. And I think the ambitions of the younger, younger firms uh, have made it possible for people to do work overseas very easily. And that might either be through collaborations that they have with local firms or uh, stepping out on their own. But it is much easier to work internationally. And I think the industry, the whole profession really, is supported in that way, to work in that way, through IT, uh, through you know um, collaborative software, these sorts of things. We sometimes talk in Australia about Australia's cultural attitude to things that come from Australia versus things that come from other places and a sort of cultural inferiority complex that this country might have and potentially even a sort of, you know, fetishization of things from elsewhere. And maybe it's our isolation or our relative lack of history, I'm not sure. But do you do you find that particularly a theme in your conversations about Australian projects? That's an interesting point. I, I hadn't really. I think that there is... But, you know, perhaps it's actually a sort of opening of eyes, not, not just in Australia, but actually in other countries. We work in the States as well. And it's, I think there are, you know, these things work in both ways. There's a pushback to having international practices and international ideas and thoughts. Uh, and that is why partnerships, I think, are the easiest way to make this work. And certainly the competitions that we run in Australia, but also the ones we run in the States and, and in the UK, the idea of people working together is strongly supported and I think it brings a richness actually. Uh, it's not just that there's a kind of servant and a server. Uh, you have a, um, m many of these are joint collaborations, joint partnerships. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely true. Just what's the connection then between the brief and the criteria and then the role of the jury and how you determine who a jury is and how you work with the jury how the jury relates to what the criteria might be. Can you talk a little bit about the yeah. role of the jury in this? Okay. So I have a couple of views about juries. I think that, uh, and this is a very individual view, uh, I think that a jury should be formed principally of the client and the client's team who have to deliver the project. And that what is then built around that core is the sort of, advice and engagement that can help the right decision to come out. I'm not a great in favour of completely independent juries making decisions because they have no skin in the game. And these are complex issues. And it's, I think it's very important that a client should be at the heart of the decision making. So how we normally form juries is we get the core of the client team and then we start to build around that either professional support or cross-professional uh, cross support. Oft, often, you know, on a, some museum uh, competition project we've had, it's not just curators or museum directors, but we've had people who handle large numbers of move, movement of people. Uh, we've um, had artists, we've had uh, conservators, because I think they can also bring a perspective which helps the, the, the client make the right decision. So from a client's perspective, what is the biggest risk in a competition, do you think? At the outset, a client is usually worried that they're not, either they're not going to have a winner or they're going to get the winner they don't want. That, that's normally what a client's 
concerning. What, do, uh, what does a winner that they don't want mean? Uh, forced upon them by a jury process. Oh, by, okay. That's, that's often the conversation we have with clients at the, out, at the outset of a competition. As the clients, I think, begin to get into the process, they realise how much their initial thoughts about the project were wrong. And it's a lovely moment to see that a client beginning to get more out of the competitive process than just procurement. And they begin to change their own attitudes and approach. And that's why I think that at the end of a competition, it's never an end point. It's, it's never, I always try to say to uh, clients, look, whatever you get at the outcome of a competition is not ready to go to the planning authority. It's then that's the what magical moment that a client and architect or an architectural team get together to determine how the project's going to go forward in a collaborative way. And that, I think, is it's often a part of the process which is not talked, to or talked, to, talked about or referred to, but it's a really important part of the process, and it might last a few weeks or a few months. And just thinking about that and building on that a little bit, I suppose that time frame of these competitions is is often a topic that's contentious and the the relationship between the time scale, the degree of the deliverables, and of course the ever-present question of the fees or, yeah. or remuneration that's related to an entry and how that should relate to the cost of entering and participating in the, in the competition in the first place. It's always controversial kind of discussion amongst yeah. the architects, I suppose, and the impact on the industry. What, what do you say to architectural firms who look at the amount of time and energy that they put into competitions versus the risk-reward chances of, of winning? Firstly, I wouldn't recommend entering competitions as a business development idea. <laughs> uh, That's good, me either. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are different reasons why architects should engage in competitions. It's not for all architects. I do see that. Uh, and, the, and the reward, if you win the competition, fantastic, but the reward is not necessarily equal to the amount of effort you have to put in. And we say this to clients also at the outset. But look at this from a client's point of view. They have to invest a lot of time, quite a high degree of risk and resource in running a competition. And for many clients, it's a very difficult moment because it's a very public statement which they are not able to control the outcome necessarily. Uh, and so for clients, uh, it's a big risk for them too. And I think that's not all often understood by the architectural industry. Yes, there are all sorts of um, uh, issues which come up with the competition, but clients are very brave, I have to say, in creating competitions. But for, for architects, I, I, as I say, I think you have to look at it from a slightly different point of view. For the younger practices, it's terrific PR. And we've got a number of cases where a architectural practice has made second place or third place or been placed rather than the winner. And a little later, a client has returned to that architect to say, well, you really impressed us. We'd like you to consider this other job we have. Or indeed, uh, they, their name gets known uh, through the com competition process, through the PR that's associated with it. So for the smaller emerging practices, it's actually really helpful. For the bigger practices, what could be more demanding than entering a competition? If you have a, ever have a design team or a team A and a team B, What's a great way of kind of honing their skills, but saying, right, we want to win this competition, go out and win it. Mm. So I think there are benefits to the practices through competitive process. But it's not, uh, I agree that the, the payments are not necessarily uh, a reflection of exactly how much resource is put in. That brings up an interesting uh, topic maybe in the competitions. I, I always find it's very interesting after a competition that there's a, especially if it's a public project or even a private project, that there's an exhibition of that content yeah. because then obviously there's a, a chance to see maybe understand the decision making or at least engage in design dialogue it actually promotes the whole conversation is that something that you promote and are a supporter of absolutely and and we have i'm 
I think for most competitions, we have an online exhibition which is on our website. So, so through the um, competition itself, it's uh, uh, the submissions are all put on the website and so people can um, look at them themselves and also physical competitions associated with either the before the jury or after the jury. I mean, I, uh, clients have different sort of feelings about this. But on the Guggenheim site, we've had uh, over four and a half million page hits and that competition closed three, four years ago. Yeah. And it is a resource which people return to again and again. I absolutely agree with you. I think it's a, it's, it's not any great to see how people put down the competition ideas but present them and the themes that come up in, uh, in competition entries. It is a great research resource. Are there uh, things that make a really good competition process and other things that turn them into a not-so-good process? And, and which have been the best ones that you've been involved in, like specific projects that you thought really added out-and-out standout value to a process through this Pro, this, this way of approaching it? The, the one that I think has been the best competition we ever ran was for the Halley 6 Science Centre in Antarctica. And we were commissioned by the British Antarctic Survey to run the competition. The British Antarctic Survey have been in Antarctica for 50, 60 years, and every previous science base was designed by engineers. And uh, so they had no windows and uh, they were highly functional. And the organization uh, was responsible for finding the hole in the ozone layer and wanted to change attitudes to scientific research. And so, therefore, the competition was a really important part of that step in promoting a different identity and encouraging people to come, scientists to come to Antarctica to study. Because if you go there, you're stuck there for uh, a whole season or two seasons. You can't sort of leave easily. And they also had, uh, the, they were prepared to support younger architects becoming involved in this. So, and we had a very interesting debate with them about how, what type of architect that might be, because very few architects have experience of building in Antarctica by definition. Um, but a lot of engineers do. So the engineer became the sort of core part of the team. But the uh, architects were adding all of those really important aspects which were to do with about creating places to work and to, to be. And I knew it had been a success because uh, we uh, interviewed people on the base uh, for the architectural brief before we sent it out. And um, the one thing that became apparent from almost everybody who was there said that what we'd like to do is have somewhere we could look at the stars because it's the only place on Earth where you can see a fantastic uh, sky dome. And, of course, it had never been designed in because it had no functional re reasoning. And this became a sort of fundamental part of the brief itself. And the one point that the client did, which I think was really inspirational, was that they said, we don't want to pick a winner at the competition stage. We want to pick three winners. And we will then fund those three winners to develop their work up to what was the equivalent of, of an RIBA uh, sort of developed design and pay them for doing that. And at that point, we then made a decision. And it's been a highly successful building and has won awards, but also it's been really, really valuable for the organisation itself. So that, I think, is an example of, a, of taking a procurement process and shaping it to the requirements of the client and the outcome that can come from it. Yeah, it's a great example. Yeah, not many architects have built down there, that's for sure. So, Malcolm, can you talk about that in a little bit more detail, the, the detail behind the conversations that determine what the criteria are and who the jury are? Yeah, I've got a couple of rules about juries, which I give to clients. Uh, seven is a perfect number, and uh, I'm happier with five, but seven is just about workable. I think that has to do with group dynamics. It's just... it's. It's nothing to do with how many representatives you have, but I think it's just very important that a jury can feel that it's working uh, in, a, in a good manner. And the second thing that I try to get clients to, to ensure is that the chair of the jury is somebody who has lots of experience of collegiate experiences so that they know how to manage 
uh, a board towards a decision. It's not a, a, well, it is something where through dialogue and debate and discussion, you get an outcome. It's not somewhere where the, you have a kind of voting. I, I can't remember uh, a competition where we've ever come down to a vote um, to get the winner. It's through discussion and through debate. And I think that's a really important aspect that may not be understood and and may and some architect uh, some architectural competitions are not run in this way. I know that. Is there often a, a champion for the project within a jury? You know, someone with the the vision that is pushing harder than others that you have to. Yeah, that's why I say uh, you know you need a client at the heart of this because I think if a client is not fully committed and is able to give that vision to the jury, then I don't think you get an outcome at all. So th- I think that's. That's an important aspect. I, I also think that um, I know this is not also commonly held view that you know I don't think the jury is the place to make decisions on technical competency. This is really a jury is helping a client find the right way forward, not really judge whether that building will build a, a stand up or not, or if it's going to cost X. Because you're talking about something that's such a conceptual stage it's very difficult to make those judgments and if as long as you have a really good competent team that's demonstrated they can do this before the jury shouldn't have to be bothered about whether a design is achievable or not because that's that's an aspect which will be developed as the project moves forward that raises a really interesting aspect of these processes i think about the nature of the criteria that they're being judged by and the way, how, how realistic it is to set those at that point in time, which is what you're talking about, but also how those criteria might shift and change through the process in the mind of the client and the jury and how firms who are entering competitions should interpret that. You know, it's the old dilemma of meeting the brief or challenging the brief. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? Because it's often from a design firm's side of the process, a really big call to ignore or challenge or go beyond certain parts of the brief or criteria because it's better, or whether the jury will then be judging that against the criteria because they believe the criteria are right. Yeah. Well, again, I wouldn't say it's a good business decision to to ignore the brief uh, because that you may make a a poor judgment in that sense. I think, uh, so let's sort of look at it from a slightly different angle, which is when we write competition briefs, we're quite careful not to make those criteria too technical because, as you say, it's not something which can be necessarily designed at this stage. So what do I mean by that? Well, in an architectural competition, one should be judging the architecture, the placemaking, the analysis, the level of thought, the way that things have been integrated, the spatial complexities, etc. One shouldn't be judging the um, whether the foundations are the right depth, the, because, as I say, these things are uh, something which will be developed as part of the design process. So, how do you make a judgment uh, as a as a as a firm? I think you have to look quite carefully at what the competition is trying to achieve, because. Some competitions are quite constrained um, either by the site or by some uh, budget or some aspects. And therefore, I think one has to respect if those are constraints which are real. And so therefore, designing outside the brief in that kind of a competition, I don't think is going to bring success. So if you are a a practice that, that values innovation and likes challenging things, then look for a competition which gives you that opportunity to, which is more open, which is more um, questioning of what the solution might be. And then I think as a, as a, you can match your skills to that competition. And does that inform also who you choose with the client to put on the shortlist? You talked a little bit before about matching the firms to the nature of the competition and it sounds like that's part of that selection as well. The other thing I say to architects is, look, you get nowhere. You're not going to win this competition unless you're on the shortlist. So the big thing, I think, is to get on the shortlist because uh, if you don't get on the shortlist, then obviously you're not in the competition. So how do you get onto the shortlist? Well, if you think that on most of the competitions we run, we're looking at 100-plus submissions, 
And so it's not just good enough to have a list of projects that you've worked on and it's not just good enough to put in the marketing material that comes with uh, working as a practice that you have to look at this from a completely fresh perspective to get onto the shortlist. So what is a client looking for? If a client's looking for innovation, demonstrate innovation. If a client's looking for a level of expertise, demonstrate that. So where, where in that sort of comp dialogue does brand sit? You know, the brand yeah. of a, a design practice and, you know, the, the conversation that you have with clients around that, is that part of the conversation? Well, I think if a client is looking for brand they probably don't come to see us. Although I have to say that many conversations we've had with clients have been, look, we'd like to run a competition, but we'd like you to go to Architect X or Architect Y because we think their work's fantastic. And so firstly, we have to sort of try and unpick what a client is actually meaning by that. Do they want the name? Do they want the identity because it's going to help them with, for instance, fundraising? Sometimes that's the case. Or is it possibly that their knowledge of the market is, is not as wide as it could be? And therefore, by introducing them to different brands, upcoming brands and other companies, that they may, it may make a richer competitive process. But I would say that if a client is really looking for brand, it's probably not a competition that they want. They want really a, a, f a way to engage with exactly who, you know, they want a small uh, level of the market. It's very interesting. There's a, I call this the Phyllis Lambert approach because um, she famously uh, commissioned uh, Mies van der Rohe for the, um, for the Seagram building. And she did that with Philip Johnson. Simply, they used to go out in New York, have lunch somewhere, a few cocktails, get in the car, and then go round to a number of offices of big named practices, of, of which Mies was one. And that is a way of selecting an architect. There's nothing wrong with it. But she knew that they needed somebody of a particular calibre and identity, and that forevermore... Mies van der Rohe and the Seagram building are, are one. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting, isn't it? And then, so what you're describing is a, is a mixture of w differently weighted concerns from a client in, on a case-by-case -case yeah. basis, really, right? So from an architecture firm's point of view, the need to really think very clearly about that specific instance, what that specific client appears to be looking for based on the information about the yeah. competition and making your own informed decision about whether or not to invest your time and resources in being a part of it. Yeah, you must read the brief. And I, I absolutely underscore what you've said. I think if you, if you are going for a competition, you have to go for it because you've got a 100 of your peers who are also going for it. And if you simply just answer the questionnaire put the documents together and the case studies, you're not going to get anywhere. And, and we have very good examples of that, of where practices have come back to us and said, well, why didn't we get anywhere? You know, we're, we're famed for doing such and such a building. And, and we have to say, well, it didn't come out in your, in your proposition. And so reading the brief and taking it seriously and going the extra mile, I think, is all an important aspect about being seen when we do the uh, assessment process at stage one. Do you think uh, that the competition format bias is biased towards fresh interpretations from less experienced architects in that project type over deep expertise in a project type? In other words, if you come with a track record of doing that kind of project many times, even if you do it very well, that the competition process is in some way looking for other approaches to that project type? Well, uh, I wouldn't agree with you. And, and we have, there's a, there's a practice that came to see us in the UK, very, very well-established practice and very competent and entered all our competitions and, in the, and got nowhere. And in the end, came to see me and said, look, we can't go on like this. <laughs> How, what are we doing wrong? And uh, I took them through two or three of their submissions and they had competence. There was no question about that. And they set all this competence out, a beautifully presented um, submission. But what they didn't have, I think, was an angle 
on each of the briefs. And what they have done, and they've been more successful, I have to say, in the competitions that we've had, is that they realised they, at each stage they needed a sort of creative partner to work with them. They identified that there was a, a sort of a lacking in, in what they were um, proposing and, and they always entered after that with a partner. And as I say, they've been, they've been successful in, in two competitions actually. A design partner. Yeah. yeah. And so it wasn't to say that they were incapable of design because that, that wasn't the case. But they recognised that they needed to bring an edge and their way of doing this was to find a design partner. And it doesn't, they weren't necessarily a younger design partner. It was just a different approach. And that's just one way of achieving that approach yeah. as well. Yeah. They could have done it in other ways yeah. internally. Yeah. Can, can we go back to the deliverables and, I guess, the relative fee and how that conversation goes and how you determine, you know, technology is changing. Some have videos now and yeah. you know, all sorts of requirements. How do you determine... What's a fair deliverable requirement versus a fair fee? Yes. Well, I think I'm probably in the context of with you two guys. I'm not going to win this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> nope. But I, I think you have to recognise uh, uh, if you're entering a competition, first thing we try to do is keep the deliverables as, as straightforward as possible. So any competition we do is five or six A1 boards. And it's a small report, and we do. We found it's really effective to have videos. We just introduced those about sort of three or four years ago, but they we are very deliberate about saying please do them on an iPhone. They're two minutes long, and they're to try and give an insight into you as a practice to introduce yourselves. And we found they've been so successful for exhibitions. People really love that level of engagement, and a model is a, another convention. So we keep things pretty tight in terms of deliverables. We realise, though, that you know the sort of level of sophistication in terms of design delivery now is becoming quite high. And we had a competition where a, where a team turned up with uh, VR goggles for the jury, which was great fun. Uh, pretty meaningless in a way, but it was great fun. And perhaps I'm very conscious we do try to take feedback from teams after every competition about if we've asked for too much or if it's been perceived that we're asking for too much and we try to respond to that during the process as well it definitely costs we always say to clients at the outset look this is going to cost four or five times the remuneration that we're going to give them as an honorarium so you have to recognize that as a client and treat them properly stick to the timetable Support with expenses for trips and for interviews and these sorts of things is very much part of the conversation we have with clients. Some clients are constrained by public procurement and they can't actually make high levels of payments. Some clients just have a budget and we have to sort of try to negotiate what that might be in terms of, of how that affects the deliverables themselves. Um, but I, I recognise it's, it's, a, it's a gesture. It's, it's not a reward. And there is a inherent irony in that too, in the sense that on the one hand, the competition is designed to open up the field to particularly new and emerging practice, but if those new and emerging practices are required to spend four to five times the honorarium and they know they're not going to win it unless they really go for it, there's a real catch-22 in there for it firms, is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah I, th I think if for the, the younger, smaller practices that we've nurtured and we do have special competitions actually for emerging practices and in fact a lot of the work that we do in Oxford and Cambridge colleges we deliberately try to pick smaller practices and the, and the clients like it and the, and the teams like it and we're and it's much more creative in terms of what sort of submissions they have to make it's much more based on interviews which we do in the offices some more some charrette work but it's not set piece uh, submission requirements so we are able to sort of change that as well. Have you had discussions I've, about the relationship between that and employment practices in the industry in general? Yeah, we're, we're absolutely against, I mean, any form of, uh, you know, interns are not paid. I mean, that's, it's not specifically to do with competitions. I mean, I think if you're a practice that doesn't pay people, it's not just for competitions you don't pay them. It's, it's sort of endemic in the way that you run your practice. But the way that... I think if you're going to enter competitions, 
it shouldn't be done as something which is, you know, the idea is to lead to win competitions, it's not just to enter competitions. So, so how do you do that? Well, you must, I think, decide. And when we've seen this work most successfully with particularly smaller practices, you know, they've taken an attitude. Well, we're not going to enter every competition, but we're going to have a strategy of entering three or four. And we're going to structure the team to make sure that happens. And we're going to view this as a business development marketing budget. And we're going to approach it in that way. And slowly, and that has we've seen practices who've done that and have become successful doing that because it's become part of the DNA of the practice itself. I think just a sort of random approach to entering competitions in the hope that with the sort of law of averages you're going to win one in the end, is that's not a very good business approach. Not a, not a good strategy, no. Uh, but I think it also, you know, interesting that you say, you say to clients, you know, four to five times the yeah. investment cost. I think if you enter a competition and the collateral you create, you know, even if you don't win, you know, you come up with great ideas, I, I think it's important that that content is usable. You know, for your yeah. business, ideally in an exhibition, but certainly moving forward, you're allowed to use that collateral rather than have to, you know, effectively put it in the cupboard and pretend yeah, it doesn't when exist. You know? We make, you know, a big thing about making sure press, that there's good press for the losers in competitions and that's followed up and exhibitions and these sorts of things are, are important. We try to give everybody feedback, proper feedback, and we're always prepared to sort of talk to practices about, well, how, can you help us unlock you know, why we're not getting anywhere on competitions. We put quite a lot of effort ourselves in. But I'd say, I think it's what's important to also bear in mind about this conversation about honorarium is, is that, as I say, competitions are a fraction of a fraction of procurement. They're entirely voluntary. So if you don't, as a practice, if you don't want to enter competitions, you don't have to. The 99.9% of architectural work is procured in a different way. And I would say, and you must see this because you guys work around the world, you must invest a lot of money in processes which are not competitions but are competitive and where it's not always as transparent about how, who's won and why they've won. Oh, absolutely. You know, some, sometimes we're enter, entering competitions and design is right down the, the cr criteria yeah. of why, why you may or may not win. So, yeah, absolutely. Do you think competitions i mean I, th I thought it was very interesting right at the start where you said that clients often come to you because it's a one-off or they're not you know they're not used to procuring yeah. buildings do you think design competitions result in better value and better outcomes i do i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing if i didn't so do you think there should be more competitions i mean you also said that it's it is such a very small part of the procurement process and if you're adding value to these people and organisations who really want to make us, you know, do something special and maybe they haven't done it before, you know, do you think there should be more competitions across the industry? I think I'd like to see more opportunities for competitive processes. So at the moment, under public procurement in the UK, in Europe, in the States, and I imagine here, it's extremely difficult to run a competitive process which is not some form of competition with a capital C. And as I said, we, we do a lot of work for clients where it's more of a hybrid and it's more of a conversation and you have charrettes sometimes, but it's, it's a more of an engagement. It's lower cost, lower investment on all sides, but you're really able to have a, an approach which gives you much more success, I think. And I would like to see procurement relaxed to allow that to happen. And I think if it did happen, you would get a lot more engagement with particularly one-off clients who would have more confidence. So, Malcolm, where do you think procurement and particularly the competition format for procurement will evolve to in the future? I mean, you've talked about the role that technology can potentially play in different forms of deliverable or engagement. Do you have an idea or a image in your mind about what an architectural competition might look like 20 years from now? Okay, well, I'm, I'm an old dinosaur, I'm afraid, so I might not even be around for that. Uh, I don't think that the fundamental form of competition has changed for 2,000 years. And there's a wonderful uh, 
brief that we we ran a competition uh, for a building opposite the Glasgow School of Art in uh, in uh, Glasgow and we, through some of the research we found the original brief that Rennie McIntosh had responded to it was four pages long and I think the only uh, there was a lovely piece which said basically it was offering the architect the opportunity to do what they thought they should do leaving the judgment to the architect and I think, unfortunately, what's happened, so I don't think the nature of it has changed. People have had competitions for for centuries. It's always been based on some sort of brief. And I, I, what I would like to see is brief moving more back towards that, so less didactic and more exploratory and allowing the profession to sort of develop the ideas. A simpler uh, brief? A sim- simpler brief. Will forms of presentation change? Possibly, yeah. I, I still think architects draw. They draw in different ways, but it comes out as a two-dimensional uh, um, a representation. Models, three-dimensional models, you, you, you must meet this all the time. When you put a model in front of anybody, it's fantastic, the sort of engagement that you get. At the moment, I don't think you get that with VR because it's it's an individual you put these goggles on and basically you're in your little world and certainly when we've seen people you know just in consultation processes people love to talk about models they love to get together and tactile yeah and and you can't do that with a big set of goggles on your head but th- these forms of um representation may change and i think that that uh, but but at its heart i think competitions will always have the same sorts of outputs because they always have. Maybe different inputs, though. Um, if you mentioned that really the briefs could be simpler yeah. and allow the respondents to add more value through yeah. creative thinking thinking and suggestions, then maybe that's where they might evolve. I mean, you, you also talked about collaborative teams now yeah. responding to projects, and perhaps that's where things will change to be even more open to inputs from all sorts of different disciplines and backgrounds that you might be responding with a whole business model for an institution um, and other creative, economic, analytical inputs beyond just the built form. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that the architects, the design team leader is going to become more of a conductor to a whole uh, whole team. And I like the idea that you've, you've... set out that in fact there might be more uh, a different kind of outputs than just the sort of the desi- the conventional design output that it may be ideas about delivery about engagement maybe identity Ident- maybe yeah, economic identity. models yeah. maybe impact beyond the project yeah you know. i think one the one thing that is definitely changing uh, certainly that we've seen in competition is there's a level of stakeholder engagement now, whether that's public, but I see it as sort of wider stakeholders and involving organisations in competitions. I think this um, ha- having a, a competition which is which is sort of rather hermetically sealed and just run by certain parts of the organisation, I think, is changing for us. We've seen much more engagement across client organisations as well as stakeholder groups. So I'm just thinking we're nearly out of time and wondering if you wrap all those different parts of our conversation together and could talk directly to design firms who are about to enter their next architectural design competition. What's your inside advice to design firms on the best ways to stand out and ultimately succeed at winning architectural competitions? Okay, I'm going to say a fairly obvious thing. Please read the brief. (laughs) I I can't emphasize how important it is to be able to play back to the people who've written the brief the client and the competition organizer the fact that you've understand deeply what they're talking about and try to use that as a way of matching your skills your background and your experience about why you should get onto the shortlist second thing i think i would say is don't is strategize about this don't enter every enter every competition Pick the ones that you feel resonate because I think in the end it's authenticity which comes through. That was really interesting. We hope this episode provided you with a deeper understanding of the procurement of architecture in the competition landscape. Thank you, Malcolm, Steve and Mark. 
Join us next week for another conversation in our regular series. Until then, stay safe and take care of your families. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.